employees actually spend most of their time talking about their own platform. But then they find occasion to veer off and attack the opponent. Guess what the news covers? It covers the attack. So what you get is a very refracted version. Hello and welcome back to the fifth season of the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and if you're feeling a bit, well, sour about this year's presidential election, you're probably not alone. While there's no doubt that the candidates shoulder some blame for this cycle's divisive rhetoric, the media also plays a substantial role. How much of a role? Well, that's what Professor Thomas Patterson of the Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center has set out to analyze with a series of reports on the press coverage of the 2016 election. They're all available on the Shorenstein Center's website, and of course, we'll have a link in the show notes. This week, Professor Patterson joins us to discuss his findings. Thank you for for coming on. I appreciate it. Oh, Matt, you're welcome. So uh, the third installment of what is to be a five-part series of reports on the media coverage of the 2016 election uh, has now dropped. This one focuses particularly on the coverage of the conventions. Um, When you looked at this, did anything really surprise you? Well, let me say something first about uh, the way we're approaching these studies. Um, You know, the great thing about a presidential election campaign uh, is also the worst thing about it. Um, It lasts forever, um, and uh, but it really does unfold in distinctive stages. uh, So that that year before Iowa and New Hampshire, what's called the invisible primary, is really a distinct period in the campaign. And the candidates' aims are somewhat different there than at other times. And then you come to the primaries and the caucuses. And then at that point, of course, for the candidate, winning becomes everything. Uh, and then you get to the conventions, all right? And and they're distinct. They're, they're unique in their own way. There's nothing quite like that at any point in the campaign. And this is the one opportunity that the candidates have to speak uh, at length, and unmediated uh, to the American public. Uh, This is really their opportunity to control the agenda. Uh, um, And that's one version of the conventions, what you see from the live telecasts. Uh, And of course, those are mediated to a degree. I mean, it's not like they just pop the camera in front of the podium and let people Unless talk. Unless you're watching C-SPAN, right, right. yeah. <laughs> they keep cutting away to the booth and right. uh, adding commentary and, and, and the like. So they're not totally unmediated, but but this really is a time for uh, Americans to kind of directly listen and learn mm-hmm. uh, from the nominees. Uh, but there's a second version uh, of the convention, and uh, that's the news media's version, uh, how it covers the convention you know, what it says during that period uh, about the nature of the conventions, about the campaign, about the candidates. And um, so that's the focus uh, of our third report, not what happened within the convention halls, but what happened on the newscasts uh, and in the pages of the newspaper uh, about the conventions. And a a number of things stand out. Uh, One is that uh, there's very little coverage of issue and policy, uh, issues and policies, in election coverage. Uh, Those are prevalent on the floor of the convention. The candidates really do talk about what they would do as president of the United States, Uh, but uh, that's a very tiny part uh, of the election coverage. Uh, Kind of the most salient uh, aspect of the election coverage is the uh, 
uh, is the horse race um, and the implications uh, for the candidates in terms of their standing in the race of what's happening at the convention and, of course, the fallout from what happens at the convention. Uh, you know, and a good example of the fallout, of course, is Trump's taking on uh, the parents of Captain Khan, the slain uh, U.S. Army officer uh, who was killed in in the Iraq War. Um, and, uh, you know, so oftentimes it's the reaction to what's going on at the convention that makes news. And uh, so the, uh, but the horse race, you know, just, you know, how does this change the positioning of the candidates? And, uh, you know, the bounce that Trump got after his convention, the bounce that Hillary Clinton got after her convention, and then the additional bounce she got because he kept getting embroiled in these controversies and the like. So that's kind of the number one story that comes across in the, uh, in the convention coverage. And quite far down the list, actually, is uh, what the candidates uh, said they would do as president in terms of policy and leadership. Um, and the, um, the other, another piece that gets very little attention on the part of the press uh, is the nominee's qualifications for the presidency. Um, now, they come into the news kind of indirectly. Uh, so when, you know, Clinton or Trump get embroiled in some controversy, uh, there's always the kind of a question that hangs over a lot of that coverage is, what does this say about their temperament, their character, and all of those kinds of things? But mm-hmm. uh, in terms of talking about kind of how well prepared they are for the presidency, again, that's a large subject uh, on the floor of the conventions. I mean, much of those four days of the, of, the, of the live convention is spent essentially putting forth to the American public why these people, because of their backgrounds and preparation, are suited to be president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a very small part mm-hmm. of what uh, appears in the news. A good example of that is uh, the coverage of Clinton, uh, where kind of her qualifications, her background, all of those things that relate to her preparation uh, accounted for only 3% uh, of her coverage. And uh, barely a word was said uh, about anything aside from her emails and scandals, right? Uh, anything that she might have done as first lady or during a time in the U.S. Senate, and she was a very effective U.S. Senator, uh, or a time as Secretary of State. Uh, you know, she made that unfortunate remark uh, about baking cookies uh, in one of her campaigns. And, uh, but, you know, in terms of the media, uh, for all the coverage it gave her political uh, and career accomplishments, uh, she might as well have spent those years baking cookies. Uh, one of the general themes uh, in your paper is uh, the, this, the fact that uh, journalists are actually the voice behind um, what people uh, hear from mm-hmm. conventions. I mean, mm-hmm. this idea that the conventions are where the candidates deliver their yeah. um, you know, policies, et cetera, their agenda, um, it's, uh, it's not exactly true. Um, one of the stats you threw out there was that journalists were the voice behind roughly seven out of every 10 news statements about yeah. the candidates. Um, and the nominees themselves were less than one in 10. Yeah. Um, uh, could you speak to that? Uh, you say that it's something that's been happening, you know, since the 60s. It's yeah. been a slow yeah. process. So, I, you know, I think when we uh, pay attention to news uh, about a presidential election campaign, uh, we think perceptually that we're hearing from the candidates. Uh, for the most part, we're hearing about 
the candidates, uh, and that about is the voice of the journalists. Um, and this development really started, uh, began actually with, when television news went to 30 minutes, picture-driven coverage in the 1960s, and they found that they really needed to use a narrative form of presentation. They couldn't use the old newspaper model and the, you know, the inverted pyramid where the most important thing is at the top and mm -hmm. second comes second and third. And by the time you get to the bottom, you're dealing with the least important. Uh, but that's not so much a story as kind of you're bumping down a set of descriptive facts. Uh, so things began to change in the 1960s, and they started to get away from that descriptive model um, and move toward a more interpretive or explanatory model of reporting. Um, and in the old model, um, the newsmakers' words were really uh, what drove the news. Uh, you know, it was the journalist's job to describe uh, what the candidates or newsmakers had said and done. Uh, and they relied heavily on the words of the newsmakers to do that. So the typical soundbite on television in the 1960s was 40 seconds. Uh, and actually, you can say quite a bit if you're a candidate in 40 seconds. Uh, mm -hmm. By the late 80s, it was 10 seconds. Um, and who was doing the most talking at this point? The journalists. Um, and, um, and the reason that they kind of took over the news, they didn't hijack it in any deliberate sense, but this new form really compelled the journalist to be at the center of the story. If you're pulling bits and pieces together and creating a narrative, uh, it's the narrator's voice that's going to drive that story, right? And the other voices will come in at pieces in various times. But uh, it was more than just kind of a shift in the voice uh, that was dominant in the news. Uh, candidates speak and think about campaigns differently than journalists speak and think about campaigns. So if you're running for the presidency of the United States, uh, what you're trying to do is sell yourself. Uh, and you sell yourself primarily in two ways. Uh, you put forth your platform uh, and you put forth your qualifications. You know, that's what candidates talk about when they're out on the stump. You, know, you listen to a you know, they say nice things about it. it's great to be in Des Moines, what a great city. I mean, they'll throw some fluff in there, but then they get down to the real meat of their message, which is here's what I'm going to do if I'm president of the United States, and here why, here's why I'm qualified to do it. Uh, so if you go back to the 60s, you see a lot of that kind of talk mm -hmm. in the news. Uh, but that's not the way journalists uh, look at the campaign. They're looking for stories. They want a story, right? And... So once a candidate uh, announces his or her position on an issue, that, that's going to be a story. Uh, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the tenth time that candidate speaks about the issue, no longer a story. So what's different from day to day in the campaign? And that's what journalists are in the business of, telling us what's different about today as compared with yesterday. And what's always moving in a campaign is the election game, the horse race. Uh, Who's ahead? Who's behind? What's the latest poll? What's the latest tactical adjustment that the candidates are making? Do we see any kind of strategic maneuvering that's somehow new? So they're always looking on the edge of what's happening, looking for change, right? And uh, the most reliable source of change information is the game, the election game, the horse race. So that's what they talk about. They talk mostly about that. And... Um, and to some degree, I think they also look upon issues as tokens in that game. 
not issues necessarily as questions of who's better equipped to be president or what would these candidates do if elected, but are they getting an edge out of the issue? Are they gaining an advantage from the issue? So, you know, for example, when they play uh, the wall and Trump, you know, to some degree they get into the question is, is this feasible? You know, what would be the implications of it? They kind of did that a little bit early on. But, but for the most part, they played the wall for, is this helping or hurting Trump? Mm-hmm. And who's he getting an advantage with because of the wall? And who's getting hurt? Who's he losing as a result of the wall? That's horse race coverage. That's really not issue coverage. And, you know, and then he kind of loops back and tries to do some things to try to recover what are disastrous poll numbers in terms of minorities. Um, you know, Hispanics have been trending Democratic uh, for, for quite some time. And, uh, you know, in, uh, in 2012, it was about two to one. Democratic in the Hispanic vote, and you look at Trump's numbers in the Hispanic community, and they're, you know, he's just he's really down in the dumps, right? Mm-hmm. And he's trying to do some things to kind of get back, uh, and and try to make some gains to offset what's going to be really difficult to overcome on election day if he if he loses the minority vote, ninety ten. I mean, it's that's he's starting from pretty far behind. Uh, so, um, but. Again, even those things were okay. It's all. It's, it's not that you know. It's not about what does this say about what he's going to do in terms of immigration. It's it's more about well, how is this playing in the Hispanic community? Mm-hmm. Is he winning anyone over with this stuff? Mm-hmm. And uh, again, so to take, it's just a different prism, a different lens that journalists bring to the campaign mm-hmm. than candidates do, and that's the importance of that shift in voice over time. Mm-hmm. Is that that part of the campaign has been really elevated. It's much more brought to our attention than it was 40 or 50 years ago. And correspondingly, issues of policy and leadership have really kind of moved down in terms of how much attention they receive in the news. And, you know, to the degree that that a lot of our attention is driven by news, the amount of attention that we give it. Uh, I thought it was interesting that early on in the campaign, uh, Trump was praised for the fact that he was able to, uh, you know, kind of barnstorm through the primaries somewhat unexpectedly uh, because of his mastery of media. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of, I think the general narrative was he was succeeding despite the fact that he had negative co- coverage. But uh, you went back and looked in your prior reports and said, mm-hmm. well, actually, it wasn't all that negative yeah. because it was it was substantially horse race and therefore it was positive. Yeah, he's doing well. <laughs> he's winning. You know, he's moving up in the polls. That's but, that's that's positive news. But that turned around in the yeah. convention yeah. Um, yeah. where uh, all of a sudden um, he was seen as losing to Hillary Clinton yeah. um, and therefore the the script flipped for him yeah. and the convention coverage was negative. Uh, I just want to read some of the the numbers yeah. from from yeah. your report. Um, for Clinton, uh, while her pol- policy coverage was in in terms of statements two to one negative, uh, uh, comments about her character were eleven to one negative. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Trump was. Seven to one negative on her policy and four to one negative on his character. Uh If you look at the horse race coverage for Clinton, it was two to one positive, and for 
Trump two to one negative, yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 that was enough to completely tip the balance uh, in in Clinton's favor. Yeah, I mean her her positive coverage came through the fact that um, especially after the Democratic convention, uh, she opened up a big lead on Trump. Uh, she got positive horse race coverage uh, in the week leading up to the Republican convention because she also had a nice six-point, roughly six-point lead at that point. So, uh, so, but that really was her one source of positive coverage, that she's, not, she's doing pretty well with the voters, right? And uh, doing well with some voters she wasn't doing well with before. Uh, now, it was kind of praise uh, through sleight of hand because, you know, if you read, carefully read the poll coverage, it's, she's doing well because Trump's going south, you know, so, but Trump, you know, certainly Trump's poll numbers really went south, and that had been his real source of good news through, through 2015, the invisible primary, through the primaries and caucuses, uh, about two-thirds, three-fourths of the way through, that had really bolstered his kind of news image. Uh, his coverage started to go south once Cruz dropped out of the race in early May, and kind of there was no real horse race there to still talk about. Uh, you know, they still covered the primaries. They still did the convention counts and the like, but it was pretty clear Trump was going to be the nominee. So to some degree, that arrow was, uh, well, it's maybe better to say that a couple of those arrows <laughs> were taken out of the journalist's quiver with that development. And so you started to get more critical coverage of Trump in that month. Uh, but there was nothing like um, what happened uh, during the week of the Democratic Convention and the week after that, uh, where his coverage really nosedived. It's interesting if you think about those numbers that I uh, just cited. Um, that's a really, that's a lot of negativity about both <laughs> candidates. And, right. and like I said before, you know, this is historically, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. a, a different kind of election. Um, uh, but but you also write that that's kind of built into the, built into the question of newsworthiness. Yeah. Well, it's built into the model now. I think, um, <clears throat> look, I mean, you can go back to even the early days of the newspaper and... Um, you know, to some degree, bad news trumps good news in in uh, in the world of media, in part because we're more drawn to bad news. So, you know, every day goes by and tens of thousands of aircraft land safely, uh, you know, and day after day that happens. There's nary a mention of that. Uh, you have a accident and it's all over the front pages. So... Uh, so th th that's kind of a long-term tendency. But <clears throat> what's changed, I think, is, is more narrowly uh, what's happened with election coverage or political coverage. Uh, in the period right after Watergate, I, th I think journalists kind of ch changed their view of how they should be covering politicians. Uh, they thought they'd been too lax. They'd taken, been too willing to take politicians at their word. Uh, and so the journalism became more critical. But one of the rules of American journalism, at least in the news reporting, this certainly does not apply to editorials, op-eds, sometimes things call it, they're really kind of carefully marked as analysis, uh, 
is that the journalist doesn't do the criticism directly, right? Mm -hmm. The journalist doesn't say Donald Trump is unfit to be president of the United States. Uh, what the journalist does is go out and get somebody else to say it, right? And uh, and that's you know that's where most of the negativity comes in. Is where the journalists basically are bringing the negative voices into the news stories. Uh, but what's interesting is they don't very often bring the positive voices in. So it's not that they're they are selecting, but within that selection process, they're prioritizing the negative statement, the attack. Uh, and uh, so the, um, you know, if you look, for example, at Clinton's issue coverage, again, she didn't get very much of it. But, but where did it come from? Who was the voice in her issue coverage? Well, more often it was Trump, not her. So it wasn't Clinton speaking about, I'm going to do this in the Middle East. I'm going to do this about income inequality. Mm -hmm. It was Trump attacking her Middle East statements. Mm -hmm. It was Trump attacking, you know, uh, her stands on various things. Uh, you know, that's that's selection. That's the reporter prioritizing the attack over the statement about here's what I'm going to do. Um, and uh, so if you, if you look at her coverage uh, and why the issue coverage is so, so negative, it wasn't that the journalist was saying, boy, she doesn't have a good idea. She doesn't have a clue. Uh, it was Trump saying she doesn't have a clue. It was Pence saying she doesn't. It was Gingrich saying she, you know. So, um, yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's so built into the model now. I don't think journalists even stop to think about that. Uh, you know, they see in it, you know, they'll listen to a candidate talk for 30 minutes. There was a nice study that was done of this in the 1990s by Robert Lichter, who's now at George Mason University. Uh, and... Uh, what that group did, what that um, team of researchers did, is they followed the candidates around. They taped every one of their speeches, every one of their press conferences. And then they compared that with the news coverage of the speeches and the press conferences. Uh, well, candidates actually spend most of their time talking about their own platform <laughs> right. and their own yeah. qualifications. Uh, but then they find occasion to veer off and attack the opponent. <clears throat> well, guess what? The news covers. It covers the attack. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like the other stuff is just background. Just Well, of course, the platform isn't news. It's, it's, it's part, of the part of the atmosphere, mm -hmm. right? So, um, and, uh, so what you get is a very refracted version. Um, but, of course, we're not out there as citizens. We're not out there on the campaign trail uh, listening to these people. Uh, we're not going to their press conferences. Uh, and... Uh, you know, so one impression that we get of them is the, what we get through the news. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're totally convinced now that candidates spend all their time attacking each other, right? <laughs> <laughs> that they don't have anything good to say about their own stuff, that they're never positive, they're never constructive. Right. You know, and, and one could say, well, you know, in this campaign, it's kind of hard to look at Trump and say that there's a lot of positivity coming out of the guy. Uh, but, you know, if you listen to some of his speeches, uh, you may th think these schemes don't make any sense. But, uh, you know, he's talking about making America great again. He's not talking about Hillary won't make America great again. He's talking. So, uh, but, you know, it's, um, it's really the model, I think, of, of campaign coverage is broken. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's been broken for a while. And... Uh, 
But this year, I think, brought that into stark relief. Uh, the problem is, I think journalists know it, but I don't think they have a clue, um, nor necessarily do I and those of us who track the media and try to understand it better, uh, is to exactly what uh, a much better alternative would look like that would be workable. Because, you know, they, it's a tough job, uh, you know, trying to come up with news every day. It's not like we allow them to take a week off when things are slow, you know. We ask for that news every day. And uh, so they have all sorts of shortcuts uh, in terms of, you know, if they really tried to study the world whole each day, uh, they'd go mad. Uh, <laughs> they'd be at the Kennedy School. <laughs> they'd be, yeah, right. <laughs> but trying. <laughs> right. <laughs> Working on it, as we, as we say. But, uh, you know, it wouldn't work. So, they, you know, they have to have kind of these mental filters, you know, to, to tell them, oh, that's news, sitting in a press conference. You know, you're sitting there for an hour. There's got to be a story that comes out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, something will be said in that hour-long press conference that will make news, you know. And they've got those filters. They're so natural, you know. That's why when a press conference is over and these journalists go their separate ways, and yet, when you look at the newspaper the next morning, they all wrote the same darn story, you know. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and they all picked up on the same thing in the in the news conference. So they've got those filters uh, to some degree. I think they've got to broaden the filter uh, and to some degree uh, kind of change some of the lenses that are part of that filtering process. I. Real quick, I wanted to talk about the methods of, of yeah. the research yeah. that um, you've done here. Um, you specifically, so you went through all the coverage specific to uh, six daily newspapers yeah. and uh, five television networks. Right. <clears throat> um, and, uh, you know, they're they're the big ones, LA yeah. Times, New York yeah. Times, Wall Street Journal, et cetera. Yeah. Um, can you explain why only those uh, outlets, as opposed to kind of the larger media environment, is there uh, um, is there like evidence to suggest that they're representative of the me larger media yeah. consumption? Well, you know, content analysis of the media in the old days was pretty easy. You know? <laughs> right. So there were three television networks and kind of the big players in the newspaper arena are the big players today. Uh, today, there are thousands of outlets. You, and to some degree, you know, it would be impossible to do that kind of content analysis. So you have to make choices. Um, and um, the reason that we settled on um, really kind of the big players, or at least a nice set of the very big players in this arena, is First, they are the big players. They still have the largest audiences. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, you know, we think about what's happened to broadcast network news. And boy, is it down from its heyday. But, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS still have uh, 7, 8 million viewers each evening. Mm -hmm. um, then you look at CNN for, its, for the Situation Room, its main newscast. Yeah. 700,000 maybe. So, I mean, you can, you, can, you know, these, and, and uh, so that's one consideration. You know, you can't do them all. Mm -hmm. um, and it's pretty interesting, actually, when they've done sort of take news outlets in terms of their audience, and you take a 1,000 of them, 
Right. And then you array them from the largest audience to the smallest audience. You get what's called the long tail. It's really stacked up on the one end with a few big players. Mm -hmm. And then when you get out a little ways, very little audience, and it runs like that all the way to the end of the of the group. So that the top players still have about 85% of the news audience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so this is the news that most of them are consuming. Sure. But then the other thing that studies have shown is that uh, most of what the others are doing is they're working off the news that's generated by the big players. Now, they may, they may change it. They may alter it. But that, to some degree, sets their agenda. That's what they end up responding to. So they're not really news gatherers, uh, but they're kind of intermediate consumers, repackagers of what the big players are doing. So, yeah, I mean, it's not a, it's not a perfect methodology, mm -hmm. uh, but it's hard to find a more defensible one in the current media environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the convention is the first major general election events. Yeah. Um, the next ones that come up are coming up, uh, the debates. How does a discerning uh, media consumer <laughs> uh, take a look at what, what happens with the debates and, and try and, and, you know, get the most out of them? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I don't think... I don't think citizens' behavior should ever be driven by our research, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, you know, the research indicates that, um, well, first of all, we know when people watch debates, they bring their biases to them. So there's never been a debate in which Republicans thought the Democratic nominee did better than the Democrats thought the Democratic nominee did better. So, you know, you take that for granted. You know, we, we do have this partisan filter mm -hmm. that we bring to our exposure. It's not... It's not like these messages just rain down on us. We, you know, we have different kinds of umbrellas that we use to keep some of it off of us, right? right. And uh, so, um, but, but if you were to look at the studies, uh, you kind of have a choice, actually, in terms of um, the effect the debates are likely to have on you. Um, one is to have your alarm clock set so that it goes off about 30 seconds before the debate begins. Turn your TV set on at that time. And as soon as the debate ends, turn the darn thing off immediately. Um, My mother used to tell me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you will have a different interpretation of the debates than if you listen to the commentary before and after the debate on the part of the journalist. Uh, now, again, uh, probably it's smart to listen to that commentary. Uh, but you'll probably come away with a different, not radically different, but somewhat different interpretation or feeling about the debates and the candidate's performance than you would have uh, just by watching the debates. Uh, what we do know is that, um, you know, one of the very first questions that the commentators will turn to and will drive much of their commentary is, well, who won the debate, right? As, a, not, as opposed to what did the debate reveal? Mm -hmm. You know, and so as a voter, the most important question is, what did the debate reveal? Um, as a political junkie, uh, <laughs> who won? <laughs> right. So, yeah, we're all trapped into that one, and including me. I mean, I, the horse race fascinates me, too. But um, it's, it's, it's just a question of proportionality, how much of it versus how much attention should be given 
look, we have a really serious choice to make in November. Uh, every November that there's an election year, we face a serious choice. Um, we ought to make that choice with our eyes wide open. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't always do that. Well, Professor Thomas Patterson, thank you so much for being on Policy Cats today. Really fascinating conversation. Oh, Matt, totally my pleasure. Thank you. Thomas Patterson is the Bradley Professor of Government and the Press here at HKS. You can read all of his reports on the Shorenstein Center's website. And, of course, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. HKS PolicyCast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. It's produced by Matt Cadwallader and Natalie Montaner. Special thanks to Becky Wickle and Catherine Serafin for their help with distribution. You can follow us on Twitter, at PolicyCast, or find links to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. See you next week.